Have a seat. As you do, go ahead and open up your copy of God's Word to Malachi chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2. And as you do, I just want to take a minute, especially since we were out of Malachi last week, to remind you of where we've been so far. We're two sermons into this short book that closes out our Old Testament. And this is God addressing his people through his prophet as they have come back from exile in Babylon. They've been brought back. They're living again in the promised land. But it is not all that it's cracked up to be. They've been brought back, but life is incredibly hard. They're still politically oppressed now by Persia. The economy is awful. Uh, Inflation is really high. Uh, Everybody's poor. They are harassed by their neighbors on every side. Post-exilic life is difficult. And this prophecy comes to those people in this state because those difficult circumstances have led them to see God differently, right? They have started to interpret God through the lens of their circumstances rather than interpreting their circumstances through who God is and always is, right? And so the, the critical question, the foundational thing that Malachi addresses first is the fact that the people don't trust that God loves them anymore. Their view of God has become twisted. And so their interpretation of what's going on around them is that if life is like this, God must not love me. That has to be what this means. And when that is wrong, right, when your view of God is wrong and your view of his disposition towards you is wrong, it is going to corrupt everything. That is the foundational thing that shapes every aspect of your life. And the rest of Malachi draws out and shows us all these distortions and corruptions that are bearing out in the life of Israel because of this distortion. And what we looked at the next week, the first one, is their life of corporate worship and specifically how they were thinking about and practicing the sacrificial system. In light of their unbelief, their worship became distorted. Rather than seeing the sacrificial system as this gracious provision by God to bring about a reconciliation within the covenant with them so they could enjoy fellowship with the God, the God of the universe, the God that brought them out of Egypt as this incredible privilege that they were given, they saw corporate worship as a nuisance. They saw the sacrificial system as an inconvenience. And so they started cutting corners, not practicing it the way that God did. They started to worship the way the pagan nations around them did and treat God as somebody to be manipulated and used to get what you want. Do just enough to get him off your back so he won't resist you or he'll give you what you want rather than seeing him for who he is and seeing that the greatest privilege and the greatest joy in the world is to be able to have fellowship with this great God and what a grace it is to have that. So they've been dishonoring God with their worship. It's one of the fruits of their unbelief. And the passage we're going to look at today as we begin chapter 2 is really a continuation of that. And Malachi is going to focus in even more tightly on the priests. Those these ministers that were entrusted with the worship of God. And he's going to focus in on their role in this, very pointedly. And specifically their role, not so much with the sacrificial system here, but what underlies it, their role as ministers of the word of God and the way that that has become corrupted as a result of this unbelief. So the priests were uniquely positioned and called by God to be the ones who would resist what's going on in Israel right now, right? They were the ones who had God's law. They studied it. They lived in the the presence of God in the temple area. They were the ones who were supposed to constantly instruct the people in who God is and what he calls us to, right? They are the ones who should have been pushing back against this downgrade that's going on as people change because of their circumstances. They should have been saying, no, this is who God is. Who God is is not determined by our circumstances. This is who he's revealed himself to be. This is who he is. They should have been pulling the people back from this. But instead, they've become complicit. Rather than stemming the tide, they've accelerated it. They've promoted this foolish, devastating unbelief. The beautiful thing about this passage is the way that it is going to reinforce to us what a gift the ministry of the word of God is, right? The fact that God has given us as he's revealed himself and that that revelation comes to us through people that he has called 
to instruct us and to realign our vision to see him rightly is such a gift. This is how God forms his people. Right? We are people of the word. Just the same way that God created the universe by the word of his power, he creates his people by his word. This is how faith is formed in us. This is how we are kept. It is by his word and the ministry of his word. And this passage is going to show us what that ministry should look like. What happens when it gets corrupted. And God's incredibly gracious provision to make sure that it is not lost. So let's give attention to the reading of God's word this morning in Malachi 2, verses 1 through 9. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces and dung of your off, the dung of your offerings, and you shall take it and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge. The people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for your word. But especially today as we, we focus on it and we come to grips with how absolutely and utterly essential it is for us and what a kindness it is that you give it to us and that you give people to minister it to us and how you guard us and keep us and, and preserve us and nurture us through it. It is such a gift and we so easily take it for granted. So I pray against that this morning, Lord, that you would, by your spirit, make us attentive to your word that he would apply it to us in the ways that we need. You know our hearts. You know what we need. You know where we need conviction. You know where we need comfort. We trust you this morning as your word goes forward. Anything that comes from me that is not of you, I pray would be forgotten, blown away, but that your word would find a solid resting place in our hearts and that you would care for your people through it. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Okay, so we're going to look at this passage in kind of three successive movements. It's not really organized in a linear way, so I'm going to walk you through it in a, different, in a kind of a different order. The first thing we need to look at is covenant, this covenant with Levi. That's really the backdrop for this whole passage, and we really can't understand what's going on in the passage without understanding what's going on there. Now, this is not something that we're probably really familiar with. This is not one of the covenants that jumps to mind right away, even for me. I do this for a living. So we need to understand, what, what is this covenant with Levi that God is talking about and is putting so much weight on? The next thing we're going to look at is how the priests are conducting themselves within this covenant. Right? What are they doing and what are they meant to do? And the difference between those two things. And then lastly... This passage sounds very, very harsh at first, right? There's some strong language in this passage. But there's also a ton of grace and kindness and mercy from the Lord in this passage. And that's what we're going to end on. We're going to draw that out for you and show just how kind the Lord is throughout this and the different ways that he is and the implications it has for us as a church. So let's start with covenant, right? So the back ground of this particular message is, is a very specific covenant. Covenant is the background really of all the prophets' messages, right? Prophets, when you think about a prophet, you probably think of something kind of like fortune-telling, right? Seeing the future, predicting the future. They do do some of that. They talk about future things, but that's not really even their 
fundamental identity. Really what they are, they're much more like lawyers. Not the, you know, and that gives us, we don't like that so much, right? Lawyers have a bad reputation, but in this sense, in a, in a good sense, they, they're lawyers, right? They're not just trying to make a buck off you. They are God's lawyers who come and they address differences, gaps, grievances around his covenants and the way he relates to his people. They're covenantal lawyers who bring God's covenant claims to his people. And that's exactly what Malachi is doing. He is definitely wearing that prophetic hat in this passage. And he's specifically addressing a covenant with Levi. Now, the thing about this covenant is we know lots of covenants from Scripture, right? We are a covenantal church, right? So we talk about the covenant of redemption, covenant of works, and covenant of grace that kind of are the framework for Scripture. And then there's particular covenants within Scripture that we talk about. The covenant with Adam, with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses, with David. These are all probably big, pretty big headliners, things that aren't, sound pretty familiar. The covenant of Levi doesn't really land in there. Right? We don't know as much about this one. In fact, we don't actually even have this covenant in Scripture, like the actual formulating of this covenant. The covenant's talked a lot about a lot, but the covenant itself is not in Scripture. So we need to look at some other passages and kind of try to get our heads around what is this covenant? What is God talking about? What is he confronting his people even about? What's the context here? So it seems most likely that this covenant stems out of the events in Exodus 32, where we have the account of the golden calf. Do you guys remember that? God brings his people out of Egypt, leads them out to, into the wilderness, calls Moses to come up onto Mount Sinai to receive his law and his covenant with his people. And while he's up there doing that, the people get bored and antsy, and they're not even sure if Moses is coming back, so they decide that the best thing to do would be to make an idol and worship it. Right? Not the best thing to do, but that's what they went with. That's the best they could come up with. And so Moses is coming out. Even while this, while this covenant's being made, they're breaking it. Right? It foreshadows what the whole rest of the Old Testament's going to look like. So Moses comes down, and they are worshiping this calf. And um, Moses is obviously righteously furious, and God is furious. And Moses at one point says, who will stand with me on the Lord's side? And the only people who do is the tribe of Levi. The tribe of Levi comes to Moses' side, and they become God's instrument of judgment on the people for that. They kill 3,000 Israelites in punishment for this idolatry. Very, very heavy. But they are commended for this, right? They understood rightly what was going on, that this idol worship was wrong. That God deserved to be honored and no other gods. And so it seems most likely that that is the place, that the covenant came out of that. That as they guarded and defended the honor of God in light of the golden calf, that this is the point in which God kind of set them apart for a particular role and calling within Israel. Towards the end of that account, we read this in verse 29 of Exodus 32. Moses says this, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son or of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing on you this day. Today you've been ordained for the service of the Lord. Right, this is probably our best clue of like, this is when this covenant, even though we don't have it in its full text, this is where it starts, where Levi is set apart for a particular role within the life of Israel. And it's important to understand that backdrop of it, because where that covenant comes out of, right, Levi valiantly standing for the honor of God in the face of all the rest of Israel. That's the backdrop for this covenant. And that's important because that ties in with the nature of this covenant and what they are called out to do by it. Israel's idolatry was the triggering event, right? This being led astray, being led away from God to worship other gods. And Levi's resistance to that. I should point out to you, when we say Levi, we're not talking about the specific guy, Levi. Jacob's son, that's where the tribe gets its name. This covenant didn't happen with him. It happened with the tribe later on. When Levi's talked about the guy, there's really nothing, not much good that's said about him. Um, he, had, he had a pretty rough go of it. Um, so, this, so when we say Levi, think tribe, plural, not just a guy. It can be a little confusing. But then this covenant coming out of Exodus 32, it's talked about all throughout the Old Testament. It's referenced in a whole bunch of other places. Um, in Deuteronomy 33, I'm not going to read all of these because it would take too long. Um, in Deuteronomy 33, 
it talks about Levi and it talks about giving them the priesthood. It talks about them teaching Jacob God's rules and Israel his law. In Nehemiah 13.29, it says, Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. We've got another reference to this covenant. In Jeremiah 33.20-21, there we have another reference to his covenant with the Levitical priests, my ministers. Right? And then another passage that doesn't talk specifically about a covenant, but it's very closely related, is in Joshua 13. This is after the conquest of the land. Israel's been brought out, and the land is being divided up amongst the tribes. And there we read this. To the tribe of Levi alone, Moses gave no inheritance. The offerings by fire to the Lord God of Israel are their inheritance, as he said to them. Skipping down to the 30, verse 33. To the tribe of Levi, Moses gave no inheritance. The Lord God of Israel is their inheritance, just as he said to them. So here again, we have another unique aspect of Levi, where they're set off and they have a different calling. They don't get land in the land. Seems like they kind of get gypped. They don't. This is actually a blessing, right? That God himself is going to be their inheritance in a unique way. Their land is going to be, they get to dwell in the temple grounds where God's glory dwells. Their provision isn't going to come from their land. It's going to come from God's own Offerings and sacrifices. He's going to care for them directly. Well, it seems like they lose, but actually, if you've seen it with spiritual eyes, it's an incredibly rich gift and blessing. There's other passages that talk about this, but I just want to kind of pull together some kind of main thoughts to paint out the contours of this covenant so we can get into our actual passage a little bit more. So first of all, this covenant has roots in zeal for promoting and defending God's honor and glory. Right? This covenant came in the wake of sin and unbelief in Israel, idol worship. And it came as an acknowledgement of Levi's faithfulness, but also because it's a recognition that the people need this. Right? Israel is going to need people who will call them back, that will remind them of who God is and what he re- is required of them. They forgot after Moses is on the mountain for a few days. They already forgot. So this is born out of, one, how God worked through Levi there, and also what the people are going to need, what sinful, fallen humanity is going to need to see God rightly and respond to him rightly. Another observation. This covenant involved a unique relationship with God. Right? They didn't get the land. They got to dwell near God's glory that was present in the tabernacle and later the temple. He was their inheritance in a unique way. God plus nothing is greater than God plus other stuff. Because he's all that you get. Right? This was a blessing and a gift. They were provided for from God's very tithes and offerings. What he was given, he gave to them. Right? And then another aspect of this is that he gave them a special office within Israel to continue to do the thing that sparked this covenant originally to guard and promote God's honor and glory. This was a privilege to be called to this, right? A privilege to be able to call this, to constantly call Israel back to this is who God is, and this is how we relate to him. But it was also an incredible responsibility. They had to be faithful to it. The key component of promoting God's honor and glory is ministering God's word to the people. One of those verses I mentioned, Deuteronomy 33, it said, they shall teach Jacob your rules and Israel your law. A lot of times when we think about priests, we think about sacrifices. And that's kind of the main thing we think about. And that was a huge part of what they did. And we tend to think of word ministry more with prophets. But the truth is they both had a ministry of the word. It was just different. Prophets brought new revelation from God. The priests were entrusted with communicating and instructing in the revelation they already had in training people up in the revelation that God had already given them. This was their job. This is what they did all the time. This is part, a key component, because how else could you guard and promote the glory and honor of God without making known his revelation, grounding people in who he actually is and what he calls us to do? This was the key way of accomplishing the role that their office was said to have. The other thing is that this is a covenant of works. If we're drawing out categories, right? There's covenants of grace where God decides to gift you something. 
You don't earn it in any way. And there's covenants of works where if you do something, you get blessings. If you fail, you get curses. This is that kind of covenant, right? There's promises of blessings if Levi is faithful, but there are also promises of punishment if they are not faithful, right? This is not something that is all, this is something that they have to perform and to do. And there's going to be consequences for failure. Now, it's important as we get back into the passage, for us, we have to piece this together from all this different context and everything. But think about, this is spoken directly to priests. This covenant, this covenant defined their whole identity. Their life is completely wrapped up in this thing. It determines what they live, what they do, what their, where their provision comes from. Their whole life is shaped by this thing. So when Malachi comes and he talks to them about this covenant, they're not like us where we're kind of putting these pieces together and trying to figure out. I mean, we're very outside of this. This is, they know this thing to the core. They understand this deeply. This is like shaping thing. This is their identity we're getting at right here. But now we have a turn, right? Because in this passage of Malachi, he's bringing up this covenant. What's happened is that the priests are about to be impeached. The priests are about to be impeached. Now, when we hear impeach, we think primarily politics, right? That's the context we hear, right? Impeach the president, right? All the time. Now it seems like it's just a constant thing. We always want to impeach people, right? But what, is, what is an impeachment? What does that even mean? To impeach means to bring a formal charge against an office holder for wrongdoing in that office, right? It's a very specific kind of charge for somebody who holds an office that is meant to be used in a certain way for violating, compromising that office. There's something very much that is kind of contains a breach of trust in there, right? You've been entrusted with certain responsibilities holding this post, so you've compromised that. You have made it so that this thing that has a vital function can't do what it's intended to do anymore. It's very different than if I just do something, some kind of crime on my own, and I'm kind of the only victim, right? You know, there's all kinds of people that are affected by this office's performance and what it does. That's exactly what's going on in this passage. The priests of Israel have failed. They have not done what they have been called to do. And they are now being called to account and they are being held accountable for failing in this sacred trust that they were given to defend and protect the honor and glory of God and to call the people to that. We saw this was showing up in the sacrificial system, but now God is getting to the very root of it. Let's read. I want to read two parts of the passage again. I'm going to cut out the middle part, but I'm going to read the beginning and the end because this is where we see the indictment on the priests. And now, O priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name. Okay, that's the key thing, right? Honor to my name. We talked about this two weeks ago. To honor God's name means to respond rightly to the weight of his glory, right? They're not doing that. And if you do not, then I will send the curse upon you. I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces and the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. Skipping down to verse 8. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. And you have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So I will make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. So let's talk about what the priests have done. What have they done? How have they used, how they performed in this office? This office that God gave them to defend his honor, defend his glory, and to lead the people rightly into who he is and how they should respond to him? Right? They've missed the very heart of their calling. They have not honored him. They have not responded rightly to who he is. Right? And this showed up in the degradation of their sacrifices. They're ex- accepting flawed, broken, lame, stolen sacrifices as acceptable worship to God. And that degradation is an affront to God. It's like spitting in his face. In chapter 1, he says, you wouldn't even give this to your Persian overlord, governors, that you hate. 
You wouldn't even bring this to them because you'd be afraid of how it would be received. But you'll bring that to me. How deeply offensive that is to the God of the universe. And that came, we've got to realize where that is the source is. That comes from the priests not doing their job beforehand. They are wrong for accepting those sacrifices and making those sacrifices. But the problem goes deeper than that. They were supposed to train the people in who God is and what acceptable worship was. The fact that it even got to this point shows that the degradation in the priesthood has been going on for a long time. Right? There's been a lapse that has gone on over time. So the people do not know who God is and they don't worship him rightly. Nor do they model how to rightly reverence him. So why? Why? Why did the priests devolve into this? Well, there's an important clue in the last verse, in verse 9 of the passage, where it talks about, in that last line, it talks about how they show partiality in their instruction. It's actually not the best translation. That partiality is translated from a Hebrew idiom that means to lift the face, to lift the face. And it actually has to do with winning favor. So it's not so much favoring one or another, it's trying to curry favor with somebody. Does that make sense? It was actually used in chapter 1 when it talked about them um, being accepted before Persian, if their flawed offerings would be accepted before their Persian governors, right? They used the same idiom of lifting the face. Would this lift the governor's face towards you? Would this give you favor? No. So that's the idea. What is going on is that they have now shifted the way that they're handling the instruction of God's word and their priestly duties to essentially curry, to get what they want out of the people, right? Whether it's currying favor in like a you know, respect sort of way or financially, right? They are shaping their instruction in the word of God, how they communicate about him, how they practice their duties in order to get certain things out of the people. That's the idea here. All right, so they've compromised the glory of God for the approval of men. Rather than honoring God the way that he's called them to, they're treating that as something they can just play around with to get whatever result they want out of people. Right? So where, why, why would they do that? Where's that coming from? Well, remember the circumstances, right? Economic times are tough. The priests don't have any land. They don't have any crops of them. They live, they depend on the offerings and tithes that come into the house of God. Well, when times get tough, people tighten the belt straps, they tighten up the budget, right? And so the priests, frankly, are probably worried about where the food's going to come from, where the provision is going to come from. And so the people want to bring lesser sacrifices to make less of a dent in their herds, kind of make it less of, a, less of a cost to worship. And so the priests have a choice before them. I can you know, say no, and maybe they don't bring anything, or I can take these degraded offerings that God won't accept, but then, you know, at least it's something, right? And so they compromise in order to essentially take care of themselves, right? They, they allow these exceptions and these breaks from what God has commanded in order to keep provision coming in. They compromise for favor, Right? And this is, this is a much more egregious thing than it sounds like on the surface, right? It sounds like such a little thing, right? Okay, so the animal's not quite perfect. What, like, what does it matter? What matters is what underlies this, right? These, the priests, what makes us uniquely egregious is they lived in the presence of the glory of God there in the temple. They got to experience his greatness in a unique way. Their inheritance was to be cared for uniquely and directly by him. That kind of privileged position should have led them to an awe and a fear of God and a trust in him for their provision, a trust in him to care for them. But instead, they are willing to abandon honoring God to try to get scraps from the people. Right? They would dishonor and spit in God's face to try to get some flawed provision from the people. Their ministry, right, this ministry that they're called to, to protect and defend and exalt the glory of God has become about getting what they need out of people, not caring for the people, right? They're supposed to protect the people from sin, from doing things like this, dishonoring God in a way that brings his judgment. But instead of doing that, they are just looking out for themselves. They have forgotten God, and they've forgotten their calling to serve 
their fellow Israelites, and it has all become centered on them. What do I need to get? And they have compromised everything about their role to get what they feel like they need. Their ministry is being shaped by impulsive, fleshly desires of the people rather than what God has determined to be good, true, and beautiful. They have tied their good more to the favor of men and they've sacrificed the favor of God to get it. They're using their office designed for God's honor and to care for his people to dishonor God in order to use his people. It is a gross abuse of this privileged and high office God has given them. They've completely inverted it and turned it around. They've made it into a selfish thing to feed their appetites rather than what it is meant to be, which is a light showing God for who he really is and holding the people to that and keeping them from straying. Now, that's what they've done. And this passage makes very clear what that means for them if they stay this course. What impeachment practically looks like. What does it look like when you have failed in this office? And he does so with a pretty graphic image that would be especially meaningful and poignant to the priests, right? He says, I will rebuke your offspring and I will spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. Now, that's just gross on the surface level, right? Like, dung on your face is not something any of us are after. But there's something deeper here, right? When you went and you performed a sacrifice, there was a process of getting that animal ready for sacrifice. Just like if you go hunting, right? And you you have to clean and gut the deer, right? And you have to prepare it. You don't take everything with you. You don't eat everything. There's stuff that gets left behind. It was the same thing with an offering, The entrails, the guts, didn't go with the offering, right? You got rid of that stuff. That stuff was unclean. That was a compromised offering if those were there. So part of their job was to prepare these animals for offerings, and those entrails that were full of the dung and everything inside the animal would be taken outside the camp because they were unclean, where there was a dung heap, and all this stuff would get piled up there. So... When God says, I will spread dung on your faces, first he says, I'll rebuke your offspring. He's talking about taking this office away from them. You have failed this office, you're going to lose it. And the people who would have followed you into it are going to lose it. When he says spread dung on your faces, he is not simply talking about there's going to be something gross on your face, right? This is rubbing something ceremonially unclean on the people who are meant to do the offerings, right? This made them unclean. This disqualified them, right? So it was much more than just something gross. It was degrading. It was dishonoring, and it made them unfit, obviously, apparent to everyone, unfit for office. And then there's this this picture, right, that those will be spread with the dung of their own offerings, and they'll be taken away with it, Right? It's talking about being removed from the sanctuary and put out on the dunghill, right? Being removed from this position of being able to dwell in the presence of the glory of God and, and to live with that weight and instead to be cast out onto the dung heap. It's a heavy, heavy curse. But it is a curse that fits the faithlessness on display, right? Because what is the heart of what they have done? They have dishonored God. Right? They have dishonored God. They have treated him lightly. They have treated him as inglorious. And so now they will be dishonored. Openly, publicly. The curse fits the covenantal crime in this case. He says, I will make you despised and abased before all people. As much as you did not keep my ways and show partiality in your instruction. Heavy words for the priests. And this passage feels heavy and harsh at this point. And now it is time to turn the corner, though, and see the graciousness within this. Because there is a lot here. We just have to get through all this to see it. Because it's subtle, but it's beautiful. All right, so I want to point out a few notes of grace that are here. The first is right at the very beginning. The first leads off and says, there's an if 
if, if you continue the way you're going, this is what is going to happen to you, right? This is not a final judgment. This is a call to repentance, right? This is a warning. Like, this is what will happen if you persist in dishonoring me. So don't stop. Like, honor me. Do what you were called to. Remember what you were called to. It makes me think of, you know, the church in Ephesus in Revelation. Remember your first love. Remember this incredible privilege and, and what you've, you need. remember who I am. Remember this. Come back to it. Stop this foolishness that you're pursuing right now because it only leads to death. So it's gracious towards the priests in that way. It's a call to repentance. It's a warning before the hammer of this curse falls. But there's another note of grace here in that even when this does fall, this impeachment happens, these particular priests who fail in this way are impeached and those curses fall on them, there is a grace in this impeachment. In verse 4, God says he's doing this, so he says this, so shall you know that I have sent this command to you that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. He's impeaching these unfaithful priests, so what he called Levi to in his covenant, so that that at work that is so good and so important will actually continue. This is one of the things about the nature of impeachment. Impeachment exists to protect the office. There's an impeachment process for a president to protect the office of a president. Right? So that when an individual who's unqualified can be removed so that that office and what it represents and what it is meant to do can continue to function and do what it is meant to do. The office is bigger than the person. That's part of the point. And that is what God is getting at here. What he was doing through the Levites, the way that he is caring for his people, instructing them in his word, holding them to who he really is and what he's called them to do through the Levites. That work is essential. And that is bigger than any one person. So these unfaithful Levites who are not doing that may have to be removed, but he's removing it not to end this, but so that it can continue and so that it can function the way that it should so that the people of Israel will have these officers who call them back to who God really is, who won't give in to their fleshly whims and desires, but will hold fast to who God is and what he's called them to do. So it may not be gracious to those particular failed Priests, but it is such a kindness to his people, right? His people who are being led astray and hurt by the very people who are meant to guard and protect them. It is a gracious, kind, and merciful provision for them. And I think that leads us to the grace of this priesthood itself. Just the fact that this office exists is such a kindness and a mercy and a grace. God is not done doing what he was doing through these priests. The center of our passage draws out what the priesthood was supposed to look like. Right? This passage is structured in, it's called a chiasm, right? And this is a common formulation in Hebrew, the way they wrote. We tend to write with kind of our main point at the end. They wrote with their main point in the middle. So you have these consequences on the front and the back, but the middle is the heart of the passage. And here we have this beautiful description of what the priesthood is supposed to look like. What is it supposed to do? And there we read this. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. Right there, we see the nature of the covenant. The, the, The purpose of this covenant wasn't to bring judgment on the priest. The purpose of this covenant was life and peace for them and for the people that they were ministering to and caring for. That is why this covenant was established. It was to bring that about. And now listen to what a priest is supposed to look like. Verse 6. True instruction was in his mouth. And no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness. And he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge. And people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. I think this is one of the most beautiful ways of describing what a minister of the word should look like, what the ministry of the word actually is and what it should be comprised of. And there's three main things here. The first one is, he says, there's 
True instruction is in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. All right, so a true priest, the way the priesthood was supposed to function is not that they just said some true things, but they relentlessly guarded what they taught. They were relentlessly governed by the word of God, and they did not deviate. They did not add to it. They did not subtract to it. They clung to the word of God, and they guarded who he truly was, his revelation of himself, relentlessly. Think about how much Paul kind of echoes this language when he talks about pastors and elders. He says, guard the deposit entrusted to you. He's always this language about guarding, protecting the truth of who God is and what he's done for us. It's very much reflected here. A true priest gives the truth. No matter how it's received, no matter what the effects are on the other end, he speaks the truth, particularly when it comes to God and how he relates to us. True instruction with no deviations. The second thing is it talks about how he walked with me in peace and uprightness. This is a really unique phrase, this walk with me. It's used very, very rarely. There's lots of passages that talk about walking after me, following me, that kind of thing. Walk with me is more intimate, more close. One of the probably the most famous places it's used is with Enoch early on in Genesis, which says he walked with God and then he was no more. He didn't die. God took him directly to be with him. And he talks about that as like the closeness of his relationship. And I think what this is getting at is the fact that what the, what the true priest says, it's not just a shtick, right? It's not just marketing and branding. Like, oh, this messaging works, so let's just go this way. No, for, for the true priest, the true minister of God's word, this stuff has soaked into his bones. It is convictional. Every chip he has is in the table, in the center of the table on this. If this fails, he is going to look like an utter fool. Right? There's nothing held back in reserve. He completely buys into who God is and what God has said about how he relates to people. It's not just what he says. It defines him. Obviously, he's not perfect. Right? No human priest was but there's a sense in which what he was saying was not just what he was saying. It's who he was. It was just a communication of what he deeply believed and was convinced. He didn't have to sell anything because he knew it to be true. They were the same on stage and off stage. They lived like God was who he says he was. And they didn't brook any other considerations. And the last thing, is that he turned many from iniquity. The heart of a minister of the word or a priest is that it is a ministry. It is a service. It is for other people. This is another one of the big distortions that happened. These unfaithful priests had made it about them. A true priest, a true minister of the word, does these things for the good of other people. It is a sacrificial ministry. You work, you labor, you strive, and what happens to you does not matter. It's all about protecting, caring for those people that you have been entrusted to. That is what you have been called to. Like a good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The minister of the word is there. He does this. It's not for him to have a platform. It's not for him to have glory. It's not for him to get to do what he wants. It's because God has called him to give up himself for the good of God's people. So he speaks truth. It's truth that has soaked in and saturated him. He's all in on it. And lastly, it is given for the good of other people. It is not about him. It's a beautiful description of what the ministry of the word ought to look like. And when you see it this way, you can see how clearly that this is a gift. This is a gift from God to be the, the recipient, to have this kind of office, to have God provide this people that he is going to call out to help us understand who he is and what he's done and to remind us when we are in the wreck of the world and we are preached so many other things throughout the week to have somebody who is giving themselves up to say, no, this is who God is. Let the rest of the world become a liar. This is who he says he is. It does not change. This is how he relates to you in Christ. It does not change. 
and we'll hold that line no matter how the winds blow and the tide comes in and out. What a gift. This is a means of, this is something God gave to his people. Part of his way of getting them home. To work faith in them. To sustain that faith in them. And hold them fast. Until they make it. But of course with any human priest. These Levites are not alone. Every human priest would ultimately fail this. No human priest. No human minister of the word. Can be true 100% of the time. I have preached false things. I know I have. I hate it. I'm sure I could go back and listen to sermons of mine from 10 years ago and I would just cringe. I hate that. I, I wish I was above that, but I'm not. I'm flawed. I, I wish I didn't struggle with doubt. I wish I was 100% committed in every area of my life to living it in light of who God is. I'm not. I struggle with sin. I struggle with doubt. All that kind of stuff that happens. I wish I was more sacrificial than I was, right? I wish I cared more for the people. I wish I wasn't self-centered. I didn't care about myself the way I do sometimes. But every single human minister of the word has those flaws. They cannot meet that ideal. Except for one, right? We need a true and better priest. And God gave us one, right? There was no human priest who could do those things well enough to keep the people on track, Right? You could take the best priests, get them all together, and they would not be able to make Israel keep the covenant. They wouldn't be able to do it. We needed something different, an entirely different type of priest. We needed priest Jesus, our great high priest, the true and better priest. He was not just a minister of the word, right? He was the word. He was the word, the word of God incarnate. He didn't communicate God Mostly right. He was the image, the exact image of the invisible God. Not a single flaw in what he shows us about who he is and what he does. As Colossians 1 tells us. There's no corruption, no deviation in what he shows us about who God is. Not only that, he also walked with God perfectly. Right? There was no deviation in his heart, in his actions, in his words from the will of God. He was perfectly in sync. Even his desires lined up perfectly with the Lord. All the time. I talked about Hebrews 4 earlier. We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. One in every respect who is tempted as we are, yet without sin. Not in any way did he fall short of the glory of God. He met it perfectly. And he did this, right? It's not enough just to see that, but you've got to see why he did it. He did this not to exploit us for his own gain, as these unfaithful priests did, but to serve us. He needed nothing from us. There was nothing that obligated him to come do what he did. He did it to serve us. He said it in his own words in Matthew 20. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. The God of the universe came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. These priests in Malachi's day were willing to compromise on who God was and to let people run away into sin and judgment for the sake of a better meal tomorrow. Jesus left glory, took on flesh, and died a brutal death to bring you from death to life. He is so different and so better. He's able to perfectly shield us from all iniquity and bring us in to life and peace. He's the perfect priest of whom the best, the best ministers you can possibly think of are just mere shadows and dim reflections. But I do want to talk briefly about pastors because pastors are not priests. There's not a one-to-one -one correlation. In a lot of ways, Jesus fulfilled the priesthood. There's no more sacrifices. You will never see me sacrifice anything. The final perfect sacrifice has been made. But there is a continuation of the ministry of the word that they did. There is a continuity here as well. And this continues now through pastors and elders. Not priests, but pastors and elders. Christ is the one who holds us. Christ is the one 
who does these things perfectly. He's the one who gives us true instruction. He is the one who guards us from iniquity. He is the one who sanctifies us. But he does it through means. He doesn't do it magically, right? He does it through means. And those means are through the proclamation of his word. The foolish things of the world, things that the world thinks is just silly. How could this ever happen? How could somebody like me talking about the Bible for 40 minutes do anything in anybody? It's foolishness that God uses to shame the wise. In Romans 10, we read, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without somebody preaching? Skip down a verse. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Church, we are saved by faith alone. Faith alone unites us to Christ. It's not anything we do. And the amazing, crazy thing is that God works that faith in people through regular, ordinary people communicating his word that he's called to. It is simple, basic, so mundane. And God takes people from death to life with it. Right? Like what we do here, it looks so plain and so ordinary and so passe on the surface. But this is a remarkable thing. God's word is going forward and his Holy Spirit is using it in every heart. All you guys are different. You all come here with different things, with different needs. And God is nurturing each of you, caring for each of you through this word being proclaimed. It is a remarkable, remarkable thing. Because what I'm driving at is what we have seen here should cause us to absolutely treasure this, right? That God gave us this ministry of the word, that we get to gather together, and he has called somebody to proclaim to us that the God of the universe has made sinners right with him through his own work. Christ Jesus saved sinners, and we get to have that proclaimed to us every week. That is the most glorious thing we get to participate in, no matter what it looks like on the surface. The fact that we get to do this together, that God gathers his people together and gives them his word is such a treasure. It's the means by which he sustains and nurtures our faith. And just we have to realize we, we need this. Right? We live in a very individualistic society. Right? That where we are sufficient on our own. And there can be a strong pull to be like, oh, why do I need a church? Right? Why do I need somebody to come tell me what the Bible says? I just go off with me and my Bible. Reading your Bible's good. That's not what I'm saying, right? Reading your Bible's great. It's such a gift that we have access to that. The church didn't have that for 1,500 years. Have Bibles in our homes and our own languages, right? But there is something, it's a unique means of grace when God gathers his people together and they sit under the preaching of the word. That you need. That is different than what you do at home by yourself. Scripture is very clear. Having the word ministered to you is different. It is different and we need it. I need it. Right? And we need to recognize that as a church. We are not self-sufficient. Right? God did not design his church to function with all of us just going off and doing our own things in our closets. He called us together into a community to sit under people that he called to help ground us in solid doctrine, help ground us in who God is and what he's done, and to guard us from the distortions that come in all the time. Just look at the history of the church. There have been many, many, many failed ministers of the word who have compromised on these things for all sorts of reasons. But God continues to raise up faithful ones to guard and protect and to keep his sheep. Even though the church's darkest days, he has kept that thread alive. There has still been the ministry of the word faithfully communicating who God is and how he saves sinners. And lastly, Last comment on pastors and ministers of the word is, I love this because I love how it elevates the ministry of the word and really diminishes the minister, right? Just the whole impeachment thing, right? That who the priests were was kind of irrelevant. What, what matters is that God had ministers ministering his word. The word is the thing that does the work. God does it through whoever he chooses. He doesn't pick the best or the smartest or anything. He just picks who he wants to use, and then he does it. It's all him. It's all the word. There's no room for glory or platform building or celebrity Christianity is just a weird oxymoron of a thing. It just really shouldn't exist. Pastors are common clay jars. 
their value is in the treasure that they bring. Period. And I love this. I just I love when John the Baptist talked about how he must increase and I must decrease. Right? And I love how this passage elevates our need for the word of God corporately at the same time making me really kind of completely irrelevant other than the fact that I get the privilege of bringing that to you. It's so glorious and so good. Last thing, guys. I want to talk to you more broadly because this is not a passage just for pastors. And it's important to realize because there's a sense in which you guys are priests as well. In Israel, there was a priesthood, but Israel was also supposed to be a nation of priests. The whole nation was meant to be priests. And the fact that they, as a nation, were meant to display and make known who God was to the nations around them. Right? So they had a priestly role to everybody that they interacted with, everybody who watched them, cared about them. And that carries forward, right? We are the continuation, the fulfillment of Israel. New Testament, Israel has been expanded to include all nations, right? And that role still exists. Peter talks about this. In 1 Peter 2.9, he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. You all, this isn't directed to pastors, this is directed to the church. You are a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Those things I talked about with what true priests do, they hold to the truth of who God is and what he does for people, and they don't compromise on that. They don't degrade it. They walk closely with him. That soaks into their bones so it becomes who they are. Not that they're sinless, but that they're fully there, fully committed. All the chips are on the table on it. And then they, they use that to care for other people. It's not a selfish thing. It's a service thing. All of these things apply to you guys in your roles as priests. God has put you in a place. God has put you in different vocations. God has put you in places where you are called to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Right? This may be just you living in light of who he is and ordering your life in accordance with the glory of who he is. It may be you talking about it. It's going to be both a lot of times, Right? The bottom line is that you are God's representative. I've used that picture of an embassy before. We are the embassy of the kingdom of heaven here in this world. And we are drawing defectors. That's what we're here to do. Defect from the world and come to the kingdom of heaven by faith in Christ alone, right? And that's what we go out. When we scatter from here, that's what we do. We go out into this world as priests, right? We love and care for this world by taking who God truly is to them and what he has done for sinners to them. So that hopefully they might be called out of darkness and into his marvelous light as well. Church, that is such an incredible privilege that we have. This is the greatest thing in the world that we get to do. To live in light of the weight of God's glory. Right? To have our whole life shaped by that weight of who he is. And then to be able to take that out and to let other people see it. Other people who are driven by such small, minuscule, inconsequential things. And to say, no, there is something better. Your life can be shaped around something rich and substantive and lasting. You don't have to be blown away by whatever is in and popular and considered good tomorrow. Because it will be different the next day. No, your life can be shaped by the eternal God who does not change who is perfectly good, perfectly glorious, perfectly beautiful. Every excellency is his. And we have the privilege of being conformed and shaped and everything in our lives being reordered around that and then reflecting it out to those who do not know that yet. Church, let us not trade that privilege in for lesser things. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Without it, we would not know you. We would not know the forgiveness of sins. We would be lost. We would be floundering, trying to find meaning, trying to be absolved of our guilt, trying to be something. And yet now we don't have to do that, Lord. We have been reconciled to you by Christ. Our identity is found in being your beloved, in being recipients of your grace. 
and knowing that you hold us fast and you will bring us home. Lord, I pray that you would guard us, that you would guard our church as we minister the word here uh, and as we get to do it in our various vocations and get to uh, act as priests in the place you've called us to, Lord, that you would guard us, that you would help us to speak truly of you and of your gospel. Lord, that you would soak the truth of who you are and what you've called us to more and more deeply into us. That you would continue to kill and make the doubts seem foolish and stupid and conform us more and more to the image of Christ. And Lord, give us a heart for those around us, starting here in this room, right? That, that we would minister Christ to each other well, that we would not be obsessed with ourselves, but that we would look out around us and look and see how we can care for and love and be a balm of encouragement and grace and give Christ to each other. And then that that would spill out to those who have, don't have that yet, Lord. They're so lost and so desperate, whether they know it or not. Lord, may our hearts be tender towards them. Lord, and may you work through your church to bring many out of darkness and into your marvelous light. We pray this in his name. Amen.